Welcome to Stargazer, a podcast about astrology, alchemy, and magic, coming to you from the City of Angels in sunny Southern California. My name is Rachel, but you probably know me as Aeolian Heart, and I'll be your host. Hello, Stargazers. This is the first episode of the Stargazer podcast. I'm really excited to begin this journey with you. I've wanted to start a podcast for a couple of years now, mainly because I love having intimate talks with people. The true joy of being an astrologer for me is the quality of conversations that open up between me and my clients. So this show will be a series of conversations with many of the writers, artists, healers, and magicians that I admire. Today's guest for the premiere episode is the one and only Carolyn Elliott of Witch Magazine, who has always been a huge inspiration to me. Carolyn has just published her first major book, Existential Kink. If you're familiar with Carolyn's work from her popular blog, Witch Magazine, or her many online courses, then you know what a powerful teacher and healer she is. I predict that Existential Kink will open her wisdom up to an even wider audience. This book is an ingenious interpretation of Jungian shadow work and is filled to the brim with practical exercises to help you apply this knowledge and insight to your own path of healing. Existential Kink is a deeply profound syncretism of magic, depth psychology, and philosophy. But it is also a deliciously easy read. I devoured the whole thing in a day because it's that fun to engage with. Because Carolyn has such a wealth of wisdom to share, I was super excited to have her on the show, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. Welcome to the very first interview for Stargazer, my new podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Carolyn Elliott. I'm very excited to begin speaking with you. How are you today? I am wonderful. I'm I'm so happy to be here, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Oh, right on. Well, I really wanted to talk to you um, for a lot of reasons, actually. I do like conversing with you. I really like sharing ideas with you. But it is very fortuitous and serendipitous that you happen to have just published your first major book. It's called Existential Kink. And I definitely wanted to discuss some of what's in this book today, um, because what I have read of it so far, and I've read most of it, has been really compelling and really interesting. Um, But before we dive into talking about your book, I actually wanted to begin by asking you to tell our listeners what your big three are, meaning your sun, moon, and ascendant. Oh, sure. I love this question. Um, My son, I have a Capricorn son. I have a Taurus rising and a Cancer moon. Right on. And do you care to maybe share a little bit, a little bit about what that means to you or how that informs you or inspires you or facilitates your evolution in life? Yeah. So, um, boy, I love astrology because it helps me make sense of some some complicated aspects of my personality that before I, I understood astrology well, I, it was confusing. So I have the um, 
Capricorn sun and the Cancer moon, and they're always a little bit in competition because Capricorn sun can be kind of ruthless and very ambition and business oriented. Um, and my Cancer moon is pretty squishy, super squishy. <laughs> so I have lots of feels <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, take time dealing with those feelings. And I like to nurture. Um, my Cancer Moon is in the third house, which has to do with, you know, communication and everything like that, teaching. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time doing that. And my Taurus rising, as I understand it, um, helps me appear quite stable to others, although mm -hmm. not, only, not always the whole truth. Um, appear stable and uh, steadfast, mm -hmm. and also gives me a taste for luxury goods. Mm -hmm. um, and a great affection for couches. I've actually recently had a very deep transformation, what with Uranus going over my ascendant in Taurus right now. I got rid of my couches. I'm now <laughs> on the floor. I don't know what's happening to me. It's um, <laughs> That's funny. I was gonna ask you about that, actually. I was gonna ask if there was any paradigm shifting rebellions against your norms or your comfort zone that was that we're going on right now and that actually answers my question um is there anything less material going on in response to this transit of Uranus oh boy yeah so I have a hard time telling whether it's the transit of Uranus over my ascendant or if it's uh Pluto going over my midheaven because I have Pluto Saturn and going your sun yeah yeah, so I'm not sure which it is, but I have, I've ended some long-term friendships recently that I thought were going to be like to the grave and, you know, they could resuscitate down the line. I don't know, but they're, yeah. they've been halted for the time being and that like, <sighs> totally surprised me, totally shook up my world and yeah. I can feel your, your sympathy. Thank you. It, it is intense. It's just like, you know, it's, it's like a relationship breakup, a, a romance breakup, if not more intense in some ways. Mm. Um, so that really took me by surprise that that came out that way um, because I, I never thought that I would do that. I had never imagined breaking up with those folks as it were, and then suddenly it was happening. So that occurred and, um, but I'm feeling pretty at peace with it because it does seem to be part of just this, this evolution I'm on, which is not always, you know, sunshine and roses can be kind of <laughs> jarring at times. Uh, yeah. And I, I really gasped there because I've been through that this last year myself and it has been, it's been so traumatic and <clears throat> so humiliating and so painful. And yet I, I found it to be, um, the most like growth that I've experienced in many, many years internally, which I think is really what you understand at a very deep level. Um, and because you're correlating these endings with this Pluto transit, I think it's kind of interesting to dive into that a little bit. Um, Pluto, well, actually, we wrote a book on Pluto years ago because <laughs> we're both of the Pluto and Scorpio generation. And I think it's really beautiful that um, you and I took an interest in diving into the nature of Plutonian energy because it is, it's very dark and it's very mysterious. It's deathly and transformative. And 
it's not um, easy to put into words, but we made an attempt. And I think we did a pretty good job back in the day. You need to publish it, Rachel. It's great. Always wants to publish it. We need to talk. <laughs> we will. I mean, I, I would love to because I feel like, you know, I, I understand Pluto much more now, actually. And I, I, um, I had a lot of flashbacks to what we were tapping into when I was reading your book. Mm -hmm. So it's very, it's amazing. Um, but Pluto conjunct the sun for people who are not familiar with astrology and they're not like totally understanding the jargon that we're using. It is as if a great dark, it's like an eclipse that's happening on top of Carolyn's sun. So Carolyn's sun represents the point of her vitality, her motivation in life, uh, the shape of her ego identity, her sense of purpose in this world, what vitalizes her, what lights her up. Um, and in the sign of Capricorn, she was just describing, that's a very intense placement of the sun because it is actually, it's the sun that occurs right after the solstice. And so though it is wintry and weak, it is filled with this incredible ambition to rise. Like the sun has to climb back up to its point of ascent. And in order to make that push to fight against gravity and get back up to the highest point of ascent in cancer at the summer solstice, it has to be filled with great faith and great motivation and great ambition. And that's what Capricorns have. So I love Capricorns. But you have Pluto right on top of that right now, which is like an eclipse. Now, the beautiful thing about Plutonian energy, especially for someone like you, is that it does actually tap you into a deeper layer of consciousness. Therefore, it is, it is like tapping into an oil well. It's almost like striking oil. Like... <laughs> There's, there's great wealth and great transformational power. There's great alchemical potential that you're being gifted with, that you're being blessed with right now at this momentous occasion in your life where you are, you know, your book is getting released and I'm sure it's going to do well and all of this amazing stuff's going on. But who likes to change so rapidly and so fast? Who likes that many things to start turning over? And who wants to let go of that much at once? No one. Like, ow. <laughs> oh, my God. And I will say that when Pluto's on top of one of the luminaries, it's so personal. It's, there's nothing that's more naked and vulnerable. So I think it's amazing that you teach this you teach this like deep dive of vulnerable shadow work. And as soon as you get this book published, you're being tested. Like you, you are not just getting to speak it and, and put it out there and let it go. Like you are being basically hands to the fire, like actually having to live what it is that you teach. You don't get to rest on your laurels. And I could see that's going on in your chart. So um, you've lost some friends or at least temporarily. Sorry about that. Is there anything else that you're feeling from this Plutonian transit? Like, obviously there's, there's great tremendous power in it as well. How are you feeling about it right now? Yeah, thank you, man. Fantastic questions. Um, I feel overall really 
blessed by it. I, and I think that's because, you know, partly through the work that you and I did, like I've spent a long time meditating on Pluto, on the God Hades, on what yeah. is that about, that part of our divinity that's unconscious and that seems scary and is about death. Yeah. And I think um, what that has led me to, you know, like you were talking about the deeper layers that Pluto can bring forth. I feel like I'm getting all sorts of spiritual realizations lately yeah. that were eluding me for a long time. So that's very fulfilling. Yeah. And, and you're exactly right. Like I, my, I'm up in the fire <laughs> and getting the, um, the invitation to apply this philosophy that I've been working with and teaching for a while. Um, and, you know, I'm not always great at it. I'm not always, I, I mean, I, the book is basically about not letting oneself be consumed by victimhood. And I still have days when I just love my victimhood just immensely. I will start, I will, I just did it with my husband. I just like picked a fight <laughs> so I could feel wronged. It's just, it's just one of the best things. Oh, yes. <laughs> I did that yesterday myself, so... Might be something in the air. The moon was in Cancer yesterday, you know. So yeah, and Mars, Mars going. I, I just read your your Mars and Capricorn post. I loved it. Um, but Mars, anyways, Mars is going over all of our stuff in Capricorn, and I feel like it's making him and I both more feisty. Yeah, for <laughs> sure, for sure. It is. Um, it's a tense time in many ways. I mean, we're not that far past the Saturn Pluto conjunction we're not that far past that like insane vice grip, that crushing gravity that we've all been under, that everyone's been feeling in their own way. And Mars is kind of like, um, he's re-agitating some of those wounds for mm -hmm. sure. But it is good, it is good. I mean, I, I experienced that yesterday as well. I, I, I started some kind of conflict in my marriage and I'm not sure why, it was completely unconscious. Right. <laughs> It was because I, I felt like, I just felt that I was right about something and I, I threw it out there. And then um, when my husband didn't appreciate it, I fell straight into feeling deeply sorry for myself. Um, but the cool thing is, is that I actually, I have learned a lot from the things that you share in this book. Some of these methods and some of these ideas I already had sort of incorporated into my world, but you make it so lucid mm -hmm. and you make it so accessible. This hermetic alchemical perspective that you share in the book is really helpful because it makes it easier to bring up the ideas in a moment of stress. And I think that's really key. That's why a book like this is really helpful because even if people have heard of shadow work before, even if they're familiar with grandiose hermetic concepts, even if they truly believe as within, so without. They're aware of the fact that they project onto others and they're aware of the fact that they're responsible for their experience. In moments of crisis, we forget all of that. We become amnesiac, but there's something about the way that you share your own experience. And I think having the moon in Cancer in the third house is also very autobiographical. You have a way of really like evoking a super personal, subjective, understanding of things that really imprints well. And so what I learned from the book that I applied just yesterday to my own little mini crisis was to remember that moods, I'm a very moody person. My moon is in cancer as well. And it's in the eighth house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
So I'm a very moody person. And I really liked that you suggested to make, to consider your emotions to be more of an aesthetic experience. And so what I got from that, I was like, well, that makes beautiful sense because we know that already from music. Like we love sad or angry or dark music. And if we can love music for being heartbroken or angry or violent and it's cathartic and somehow beautiful to us, then so too should our emotional repertoires. And I really, I really resonated with that. So I did, I just kind of, I really sunk into, I felt, I found myself alone for many hours yesterday after I fought with my husband. He went out, I was alone. <laughs> I, felt, I felt all kinds of pains of guilt, all kinds of heaviness. And then I realized how much I love this palette, how much I love these colors and these tones and the ambiance of that mood, feeling sorry for yourself and feeling like a victim and feeling misunderstood. It's so, it's so beautiful in its own way. And that gives you a little bit of objectivity, just enough space to breathe. Then you can kind of reclaim your sense of humor. And then I realized that I could just write him a sincere note of apology, which I did. And I couldn't think of that. I couldn't think of what to do when I was so caught up in the emotions, when it was so, when it was just breathing down my neck, weighing heavily on my heart. I could do nothing productive. But as soon as I just like opened up to the fact that I was creating a palette of colors with this mood and that there is some beauty in it, I really, really, really actually was able to come up with a solution. And I think that's a lot of what you're teaching is that if you could give yourself a little space that the creative spirit, the problem solving mind, the things that we come equipped with, the tools that we have to navigate this crazy world will return. So can you speak to that a little bit? Um, what it is like that you're really hoping people will understand after reading this book? Oh, absolutely. And your story about yesterday makes me so happy to hear because that is a huge part of what I want to transmit to people. I regularly have, <laughs> have fights with my husband that are things that I ended relationships over in the past. Like I would get to that space with other people and be like, this is it. But from this perspective that we're talking about, like the, the kind of more playful aesthetic perspective rather than the moralizing perspective, mm -hmm. like, I, I have a hard time taking myself seriously for long. <laughs> I can do it for like two or three hours and then my steam just runs out and I'm just like, oh, actually that was this really kinky, funky thing that I like to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and now what, how do I want to get back to center with it, right? So I'm, my big inspiration for learning to take an aesthetic view rather than a moralizing view came from Oscar Wilde, who I am forever devoted to. Me too. And I think I just really learned from him that there's no point. It, like people, especially in this day and age, seem to like really love and it's very human. We love to judge things. We love to say like, this is good, this is bad, this is wrong, this is wonderful. Mm -hmm. And okay, sure, but <laughs> it's all happening. And I loved the analogy that you drew with music. It's like we, uh, a, a sophisticated person doesn't say like only this kind of music or only this kind of emotion 
in music is acceptable. Yeah. You know, a, a worldly educated person has a wide palette for taste. And I think we can do the same with our emotional lives. And that, that I guess the interesting thing is, I think we're all, we're all caught up in a work of art. I think Terence McKenna said something like that. The important thing to remember is that you're in a crazy work of art. <laughs> and yeah. I think, you know, it's true. And we, um, you know, we're all divinity, we're characters in divinity's dream. And um, there is a substantial part of my reality that I create with my energies and my attitudes and whatnot. And having a, yeah, just not being able to take myself so seriously and realizing those funky artistic games that I'm playing with the different palettes and the different emotions, it makes it more fun because it makes it, it makes it, um, lets you change up the game quicker. Like if you realize you're playing with one palette and you've had enough, you can pivot just like you did yesterday. Instead of staying in that, like, like what you were describing yesterday, I've had times in my life where I could stay in that for like weeks, months, oh, yeah. years. <laughs> and so learning how to switch it up is what I'm excited about passing on to others. Yeah. Awesome. I feel like it really, it comes through really crystal clear. It's very lucid and really accessible, which is what's really important. Um, and I do, I love that you are, you are teaching, it's alchemy. You know, that's what this is. It's alchemy. Um, stripped of a lot of the arcane jargon. Um, but nevertheless, it maintains the same exact philosophical underpinnings and the same, the same belief in transformational journeys. Um, and this, you know, hermetic worldview that's woven in throughout, I really appreciate, but I also love that you're sharing it with people that maybe aren't interested in arcane philosophies. And uh, I feel like another element of your chart that I would like to just touch on is the fact that you have Jupiter in Sagittarius conjunct Neptune. And that's a great placement of Jupiter. So for those who are not familiar, um, Jupiter is the planet of abundance, blessings, fertility, and wisdom, meaning that astrology sees wisdom as being a great source of wealth, the true source of wealth, actually. And um, Jupiter is the ruler of the sign Sagittarius. So Carolyn has a very nice placement of <laughs> Jupiter. The conjunction with Neptune makes it all the more mystical. And I really feel like that comes through a ton in your work because you are so philosophical at the end of the day. And what I like about Jupiter's gifts and its place of rulership is that it has a very wide spectrum, a wide scope that it's drawing from, but it's capable of creating some kind of cohesion, meaning that it's weaving together so many worldviews, so many ideas, so many philosophies, and into like some kind of cohesive framework. So turning a bunch of data into a theory, turning a bunch of quotes and ideas into a practicum, you know? So that's what you're really gifted at, and I love that. Um, what's it like to have a Jupiter in Sagittarius? I'd like to hear. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh boy. Um, and thank you. That was so, so beautiful. And um, 
and I am kind of hopelessly syncretic. This is something I've noticed about <laughs> myself. I have to bring everything together or else I'm not satisfied. Um, but uh, what is it like? Well, I've, first of all, I've spent a lot of time doing Jupiter magic too. So I feel like mm -hmm. that's been up to the ante a little bit here. Um, it's fun. People tell me that I have like a Santa Claus kind of energy. And I like that. I, that feels very sweet. I do. Yeah. I feel jolly. Um, I definitely have experienced a lot of expansion, especially post my Saturn return, I guess. I think I hear for a lot of Capricorns, it's hard um, until you go through your Saturn return to have your place in the world. But post mm -hmm. my Saturn return, I've experienced a lot of beautiful expansion and money and travel mm -hmm. and publishing and all of those lovely Jupiterian things. Um, what is it like? What is it like? Um, well, I also have a tendency to eat too much. I love consuming mm -hmm. everything. <laughs> and my tum tum mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that it, um, I guess it contributes to sort of, a, I think you, you once actually said this to me and, and I've meditated on it and held it in my heart because it was very sweet. It was something about like, um, you know, being able to have a happy or a jolly attitude towards some of the darker, scarier things in this world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that is the main benefit that I derive from it. I have, um, my Sagittarius is uh, eighth house. So <laughs> all that fun, scary life and death stuff. And, um, you know, you were talking about alchemy and I, I guess what I've, and I loved what you said, like real, real wealth comes from wisdom. I'm about to launch a membership program called Wealth where I'm hoping to teach people exactly that, like the wisdom yeah. that creates material wealth and spiritual wealth because they're so intertwined and yeah, why have one without the other really? Yeah. So <laughs> the, um, the Philosopher's Stone in my experience comes from looking right at things that are like so gross and so messed up that like my ego recoils from and finding a way to just intensely love them and celebrate them because the whole point of alchemical growth at least as i understand it is getting beyond my ego's perspective and into mm -hmm. something larger and really not just giving that larger thing like lip service which i feel like many people out there do <laughs> because yeah. maybe they don't know how to do it go further with it not just giving it lip service but really emotionally physically sensationally embodying those truths um and that um well it's endlessly entertaining and it's endlessly challenging um i feel like i may be rambling a little bit i'm gonna pass the ball to you okay no i i like it rambling's good it's like um it allows images to start sort of pooling and, mm. and uh, arriving from deeper places. So I like rambling. Um, but yeah, I actually wanted to ask you just some really bare bones stuff about your work because maybe not everybody listening is familiar. I think most people will be familiar with what you do, but we should not assume or presume that everybody knows exactly what you do and what you teach. So let's just dive into your work in summation um you teach shadow work um 
and a lot more than that, but the foundation of it all, the foundation of the pyramid is shadow work. So a lot of what we know about shadow work, or actually I think the term itself is derived exclusively from Carl Jung, who was an astrologer and an alchemist, a hermetic philosopher of the 20th century. So can you just speak a little bit about what inspired you to start working with the shadow and what that is, what that means to you a little bit? Oh, wow. Yeah, so many, so many fun stories there. So um, basically what inspired me was getting called out quite publicly. And um, back when I was 25, 26, I can't even remember exactly. I was a very sort of love and light kind of person. Yeah. Um, and I was involved in this organization where we threw like psychedelic parties, sort of like little mini Burning Man's. And I had this conflict with this guy. And I basically, I did some Machiavellian maneuvers to get him out of the group and me in charge. Mm -hmm. And I did that all without thinking about it. It just came so naturally to me. Mm. <laughs> and we, I ended up in this giant showdown with this guy. It was like a Facebook thread that was consuming our whole community for five days. Yeah. There were like a thousand replies back and forth. Um, he was accusing me of some something strange but what it came down to I was like finally at the end of this 1000 thread argument it's like okay what do you want from me man like what what is the point here what is the goal and he was like I just want you to admit that you are a Machiavellian power player and you will swap at nothing to get what you want <laughs> and this like it blew my mind so hard because I had spent, I was spending like hours a day doing loving kindness meditation. Sorry, I have a little cold. No, no, it's okay. Hours a day doing meta meditation, you know, being like focusing on my bodhisattva vow. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of myself as manipulative or power hungry or anything like that. Was like, what? What do mean? Mm -hmm. What are you talking about? <laughs> And, but I could feel the truth in it. Like he yeah. had like given me an arrow of truth. And so I began to, I was like, oh, I have a shadow. I need to integrate it. How do I do this? And so I started reading Jung and I started reading popularizations of Jung. And by the way, I'm just gonna say this, I am massively unsatisfied with every other popularization of shadow work out there other than my own. Yeah. <laughs> very lacking. It's sort of like, admit that you're angry. Okay, what now? <laughs> I find it's, it's more like about like basic emotional awareness than, than un really understanding the unconscious. And so there's, Jung gave a few different definitions of the shadow, you know, things that the ego doesn't want to identify with, doesn't want to own up to. Um, I like Marie von Franz tells a story that one day in a seminar, somebody was asking Jung to explain the shadow and he just pounded the table and said, you know, God damn it, it's the unconscious. <laughs> it's just the unconscious. And that's, I, I like that understanding of it, frankly, because I do think, you know, people talk about the golden shadow. It's basically the whole of reality, manifest and unmanifest, that we think that we're separate from, that our egos don't want to identify with, right? Like my ego thinks that I'm a woman, who lives in Pittsburgh and has this body and that this body is somehow especially important and must, you know, all of these things. And then there's all everything else, like all of the 
um, the things in, in the ancestors, mythology, in our future alien selves who live mm -hmm. in the Pleiades and beam messages backwards, in my things that happened when I was three months old that I don't remember, the whole of the unknown, which yeah. also includes death, right? I, I like to think about death being the great unknown, the great unconscious. Yeah. So, um, so everything. But the way that I focus, what I focus on in my book and what I think is a great entryway for most people is um, it's the desires that you don't want to have or don't want to admit to having. So for me, um, there's a very simple way of finding this out, and I talk about it in my book, which is using this extremely offensive axiom, which is having as evidence of wanting. And with this axiom, which I don't recommend in using in arguments with your significant other, <laughs> but just using for one's own self, <laughs> sometimes Ty will be, I'll be like, that was so rude. And he'll be like, well, having as evidence of wanting. <laughs> Anyways, but um, looking at my life. So what do I have going on in my life? And understanding that some part of me finds that desirable, compelling, interesting, fascinating, mm -hmm. something. And it could be a personal part of me, or it could be something at a very, very deep collective level. Um, and the way that I first realized this was thinking for years that I hated being broke all the time. I hated scrounging little freelance writing jobs to get by and Yep. Everything. And as I tell the story in the book, one day I realized like, oh no, no, there is a part of me that has this kinky, masochistic, endless love for this bondage and humiliation here. Um, and the, the more I admitted that to myself and appreciated that and loved that, the more um, that previously unconscious desire for scarcity was able to become conscious and I was able to let it go because yeah. conscious desires have much less power than unconscious <laughs> desires. Yes. So, um, so that's the lens at which I suggest most people start looking at it is the lens of desire, which I also think is interesting. I've been reading a lot of Freud lately and um, Freud is always talking about desire, the libido. And of course, Jung, you know, was, uh, <clears throat> was at first Freud's student and he broke with Freud to have his own, sort of depth psychology that's a little bit different. But I think there's still many, many things in Freud that are, are worth paying attention to. And people, he's, Freud is very unpopular today. And one of the reasons he's so unpopular is because he was endlessly insistent about the importance of both sexuality and aggression in absolutely everything we do. And basically there are these twin desires. So something that I think about lately is how every time that I love somebody, I just absolutely love them. I also simultaneously in an equal amount want to devour and destroy them. <laughs> and if I'm dishonest about that with myself, I end up thinking, I just, I just have an unbalanced approach to things and I feel victimized and I feel like aggression comes from the outside and it doesn't mm -hmm. Yeah. But when I'm really, really honest with myself, I'm like, oh no, I have, my desires are just, are, I have Kali and Pluto desires just as much as I have, you know, Aphrodite 
and Jupiterian desires going on in here. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm very interested to know, um, did you, when you were a love and light Gaia babe back in the day, um, <laughs> did you know anything about your natal chart? Had you studied it at all? Okay. I knew that I was a Capricorn. Okay. I knew that I was a Capricorn and I knew that I was a Cancer moon and that that meant that I was sensitive. That you were, I, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't actually until I was, um, like going miserable. Like I'd gotten myself, this was after that whole story happened. Yeah. I had to get married in 2012 to this really amazing far out quadruple Aquarius guy. The relationship like ended in flames. We, I like left him on our wedding night and this was not a small wedding. This was like a giant family wedding. I left yeah. on our wedding night. I was suicidal after that. I sought out a consultation from an astrologer. This is why astrology means so much to me. And I'm, I'm, I just, I love so many astrologers. Is, um, Adam Ellenboss, who I think might go by something else now because he's gotten into Vedic stuff. Achuta Bavadas. That's his name now. Got it. Yeah. So I consulted him and he looked at my chart and he was like, oh, the day you tried to get married, that was the day that your Saturn return in Scorpio in the seventh house happened. Yeah. Which is traditionally, you know, I guess Hellenistically associated with divorces. A Saturn return in Scorpio in the seventh house is a divorce. And he was just like, your wedding and your divorce were the same day. And there was something so freeing in that. I guess yeah. up until then, I had just been blaming myself for how yeah. awful that was. And yeah. I started realizing like, oh, there's a pattern going on here that um, there's some larger intelligence at work in this train of events. And maybe I can open up to a wisdom in that. Absolutely. So we have like, like plants, like trees and seeds. We come with this divinely timed development process. And that's, that's what you finally tuned into when you got that reading. Um, and I would argue that, you know, in, if you had, and it's okay, cause it's divinely timed. You weren't meant to understand yourself so deeply until you did. But that whole period of total ignorance about your dark side wouldn't have been possible if you had known your natal chart deeply because you have an intense amount of Scorpio. Not only are you a Pluto in Scorpio, like myself, Saturn in Scorpio, like myself, you have a Mars-Pluto conjunction. The serial killer aspect. <laughs> I mean, Machiavelli is a nice way to describe it. You know, you're like a, you're a killer. You're a predator, <laughs> like a predator with a heart of gold. You know, there's paradox in it, which is something you described in your book as well. The necessity of accepting paradox. And you must in order to really appreciate your natal chart, not just yours, everyone's. There's a whole picture and it's filled with paradox, but Mars conjunct Pluto, there really isn't in Scorpio, mind you, there isn't a conjunction between planets that could be more hungry for power. <laughs> like, there couldn't be one that's more like more outfitted with claws and teeth to like get whatever it's after. Now, what I will say is that Mars and Scorpio alone, people with Mars and Scorpio get what they want. They get what they're after, but they have to know themselves. And that's what Mars conjunct Pluto is really all about is a very intense journey, a lot of strife, 
but nevertheless, like an unbelievably predatory instinct for just following what it is that you want, following the trail and leaping upon or pouncing on what it is that you want to eat. You know, <laughs> like This is so funny right now, Rachel, because I just started a, carniv- a carnivore diet and I feel <laughs> better than ever. <laughs> so the fact that we're talking about my predatoriness is just, it's really delighting my heart right now. <laughs> um, yeah. And then Machiavelli too. I love, I mean, I love that. It's actually, I think that's a beautiful compliment in a certain way. You know, because there's, there is somebody who is so sharp, so keen, so observant, so hyper aware of the environment. And yes, it is, it is dark and it's manipulative and it's predatory, but it's so intelligent in order to be a predator. Imagine the senses that a a predatory animal actually has. Imagine the eyesight and the hearing and the sense of smell and just the awareness and the ability to tap into that awareness for personal gain. I mean, it's really incredible. A lot of rock stars have Mars in Scorpio. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a class on Mars in Scorpio when he, when he finally transited in Scorpio a couple months ago. And um, Bruce Lee was a Mars in Scorpio. It's just like, it's a, great, it's a great list of people that you have in that side. But yeah, you have Mars conjunct Pluto, which I feel um, the thing about Pluto is that it is very dark it comes with that shadow. It comes with more than just your shadow. It comes with the collective shadow, um, which is something that I might wanna, yeah, let's talk about that in one second. But when you have Pluto on a personal planet like that, it shows that you have such a capacity for transformation. You have such a capacity for deep, deep knowledge. Depth psychology is a great, path for you and I'm so glad you found it because when you did you actually started accessing your Mars conjunct Pluto so Pluto is not just about about letting darkness and evil and wickedness and cruelty bubble up it's also alchemical it's about actually dredging the lake or dredging the underworld for material that can be transmuted into light So it is actually not just darkness. It's darkness that is capable of being transformed into light. Or even, you know, a Plutonian image that's often used by mundane astrology is oil, oil itself. And I mean, this is a metaphor. I'm not saying that it's right that we rape and pillage the earth for oil, but let's just look at it objectively. Oil can be transmuted into light energy. You know, we are like humming. This whole world's humming with that power. Um, and on, a, on a, an archetypal symbolic level, that's what Pluto is. So I think it's amazing that you discovered that about yourself and that you have such a powerful placement in your chart to make it possible for you to carry it through and offer so much of this to other people, which is very, that is the sweet side of you. That is the generous, that's the Jupiterian, Cancerian side of you, which is also very true. It's also there. So it's not just all about you and your, your personal appetites being satisfied, there is so much that compels you to also generously give and share and make it a more well-rounded life, you know? So, like, um, but yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit about personal shadow. So what you're talking about is actually like the experience of discovering one's personal shadow, understanding that there's a lot within you that's not so acceptable. There is 
evil inside of every human being, (laughs) for sure. Um, And there's a lot that we bring on ourselves as a result of our unconsciousness. That is very easy to understand. I think anyone who really is honest can see that. But what about the collective shadow? Where does the personal shadow and the collective shadow, like how do they interact? And how do you know if you are swept up in the collective shadow or if it's just your own? Oh, amazing question. I love this. And this is this ties in also something that people tend to bring up when they hear me talk about the axiom having as evidence of wanting. They'll be like, well, I grew up with immense prejudice against me um, because of my race. What about that? Or I experienced all of this horrible sexual abuse and all of these things. And, you know, they're saying like, are you saying that I wanted that? And that's uh, victim blaming. And here's the thing is I'm not victim. I'm very not into blame at all. That's the thing about this philosophy that's actually bothersome is it's not about blame victim or, or, whatever, uh, persecutor, not persecutor, perpetrator. Mm-hmm. It's not about blaming anybody. Um, what it's about is about realizing that, okay, so there are these things that are, so generally what I tell people is if you have a pattern in your life um, that other people that you're friends with or other people in your family, you know, they don't seem to have it. They're not dealing with it. Like for me, I, I couldn't seem to make more than a certain amount of money every month, but other people I knew were doing just fine. They were, you know, going on in their careers or whatever. So I had to be like, okay, well, what is this with me? And that was mostly a personal thing, although many other people have it. (laughs) So it can be a, it can be a larger thing too. But if I thought there's something that's endemic, that's societal, you know, as racism is, as child abuse is, as um, sexism and sexual assault are, as, um, you know, oppression is, obviously there's a major collective element to that. Mm-hmm. Here's, and so I'm, again, never, never saying that anybody is to fault or to blame for experiencing hardships in life. What I'm trying to say is that you know, hermetically speaking, we are all, um, we all contain everything. The collective is inside all of us. Mm -hmm. So, um, so these very dark collective desires to experience master and slave dynamics, to experience, you know, violation, to experience all of these rather heinous, atrocious things, yes, those desires do exist within me. And I would say that those desires exist within everyone. And even if in this lifetime, it seems like you're at the top of the pot, the heap or whatever, you know, let's say you're a billionaire and you're white and you're a man and everything goes your way all the time. It's larger than this lifetime, right? Like we're all on this merry-go-round and we've all been at the bottom many times and we'll all be at the top And I understand that that's something that maybe if people haven't had direct visionary experience of their own past lives, that can sound very far out and weird, but just putting that out there, that samsara goes round and round. So there's that. And, um, and we all, we are all fractal holographs of the whole. So um, I experienced I've experienced, this is maybe trigger warning here for anybody who doesn't want to hear about extra intense things. You might want to pause now. I'm just going to say, I experienced sexual assault. I experienced molestation. I experienced rape. 
And when I, and I had plenty of time to grieve and be supported in that grief by conventional therapy. I had over 10 years and I highly, highly recommend that to everybody. So what I'm about to say is, is not for people who haven't had that kind of support. What I'm about to say is mostly for the ears of people who have had plenty of that and are at a place where they're kind of bored with their grief and their rage. Mm-hmm. Okay. What I'm about to say is that I found that there is a place in me that is probably part of the collective shadow that's very deep, that is absolutely enchanted by that whole experience of violation, that finds it fascinating, compelling, dramatic, just like Game of Thrones episodes, right? Yeah. People can't stop watching, even though there's these depictions of horrible violation. Um, That is in me, and I believe that that's a widespread thing. And here's the thing about that is it doesn't shift, it doesn't lose its creative power if I just judge that and shame that and say that's wrong for some part of me to have that interest or I wish I never had that so it could never have created what it did or I wish it would just go away and everybody. All of those attitudes of pushing away, of trying to like, you know, distance myself from it, that just pushes it deeper into repression that pushes it deeper into the unconscious where it actually has more generative power because the unconscious, it's like the unmanifest, it's like a womb and it constantly, you know, it gives birth to synchronous happenings, whatever we put in there. So the more that I love that part of me that has that fascination, that wants to experience that, um, and part of this, oh, this is a whole other thing I get to talk about is finding my love for Donald Trump. Because for a long time, I was just like super triggered whenever I would open a newspaper or watch whatever show, just seeing the man's big orange face bothered the hell out of me because he's a, he's a proud sexual assaulter. And he brags about it, right? Yeah. So, and I think that many, many people who've been through this have this experience of, of the president. Um, anyways, what I'm trying to say is I realized that by regretting, shaming, trying to distance myself from this part of me that has this fascination with and this desire for violation, I wasn't doing anything to heal it. Um, I wasn't doing anything to actually shift the dynamic. I like to say, and I think it's very true, you know, if disapproval made anything better, if going that shouldn't be, you know, that made anything better. We'd all be in heaven by now because tons of people have been heavily disapproving of, of horrible things for a long time because they are horrible. Yeah. So finding a way to be present with them, um, has been really healing for me, has been, um, healing for many other people who've gone through this process with, with traumatic matters that they have grown bored by their grief and rage over and they're ready to have a different relationship with. Yeah. Um, And they are collective and the collective is in me. And there's probably no really hard and fast distinction. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do just encourage people to blame and shame are never necessary. Blame and shame only push things further into the unconscious. And that's why an aesthetic attitude rather than a moralizing attitude is so important. Because like I said, we all know what it's like to aesthetically appreciate very dark, very scary things. You know, when I wrote my book, I'm not sure what's the best 
highest television right now, but when I wrote Existential Kink, Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead were the two top television shows, and they were both filled with murder and rape and all sorts of things, right? People fucking love them. (laughs) And I think that shows us something about, a little bit of something about the human human attraction. We're attracted to dark things. We find them fascinating and compelling and we're trying to come to grips with them. And I think that that's ultimately an evolutionary impulse because where it ultimately can take you is to um, a very deep, uh, I like to call it, you know, the philosopher's stone, the self with a capital S, Mm. the, you know, um, knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel, communication with your daemon or your genius, the goal of hermeticism and alchemy and Jungian psychology, a very deep individuation, a very deep initiation that includes these collective horrors and, you know, um, embraces them and transcends them. Um, So it is a kind of enlightenment, if you will, and it's not an enlightenment that's um, divorced from this world, it's very, very imminent and very, um, very, very interesting. But I'll, I'll stop talking for now. I, I guess we're coming to our end of today. I would love to continue this conversation forever. Can we have more conversations? <laughs> oh, I would love to have you on again. I think we have a lot to talk about. Some things that I would love to delve into further is the collective shadow of this country through the lens of Donald Trump. I think that would be a great conversation. I would be very excited to have that. Um, I'm not afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Two, which also ties into Pluto, FYI, everyone. Um, But no, I I just want to respond to what you said, and then I will let you go. Um, But I feel like in a, in a very, um, very personal. Thank you for sharing that. That's very personal and very courageous. Um, of you to not only uh, share that, but also to take that perspective. What I feel in very simple terms, just from my upbringing, I was raised Christian. I feel like what you're describing is the genuine experience of forgiveness. Yes, Christ consciousness. Yes, yes, ma'am. And I I feel like that's, it's not easy to forgive. And the one, the one gripe I always had when I was growing up is, I mean, I, I resonated with forgiveness. I understood what Jesus was saying, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand what the process could be, which is why I love alchemy so much Mm -hmm. and practice it myself. And I love how you described that. And I, I do think it is like, um, the collective and the personal bleed into each other all the time. I feel that as well. It's yin yang, you know, absolutely. Um, And in astrology, the transpersonal planets, which are Uranus and Neptune and Pluto, they represent the collective and they are in our personal natal chart. So they are, it is in us. Absolutely. I mean, I agree with that. Just from an astrological perspective, you can do a lot of diving into that how the personal and the collective bleed into one another just by looking at the natal chart, which is why astrology is like an endless well of, of inspiration for me, very fractal wave, like in and of itself. Um, and I just, I think that I want to just close with a quote from the Tao Te Ching that I found the other day. And I was like, Oh, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. It's very much, it evokes what the philosophy of shadow work is all about. And it's so much more ancient And it really, that speaks to 
just the collective consciousness in and of itself, that it was not Jung that discovered all of this for the first time. He rediscovered it. He remembered it. So, and we are working through his work because he's modern, but the Tao Te Ching says, give evil nothing to oppose and it will disappear by itself. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. So it's a beautiful, beautiful quote. And it actually is what you're saying and it's what you're teaching. So thank you, Rachel. It's so beautiful. I'm going to have to borrow that and start preaching on it. Get on my evangelical. (laughs) It's so incredible. I highly recommend it. I know that you will uh, really dig it. It's a book of poetry and philosophy and it's it's deep. Like it is the perfect text to do Lectio Divina on, you know, it's just like, it's an endless well. So, and yeah, your, your work is in it. <laughs> like what you believe and what you practice is in it. So I think you'll appreciate it. Um, and that is all that we have for today. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I really enjoyed talking to you and I would love to have you on again. We can dive into lots of deep topics and swirl around the cosmos together. Sound good? Such a pleasure. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, all right. Have a beautiful day. Bye-bye. And that concludes the first episode of Stargazer. I'd like to thank Carolyn Elliott once again for being so gracious as to be my first guest. You can learn more about her at carolyngraceelliott.com where you can find out how to take one of her truly transformational online courses. And you can check out Witch Magazine at badwitch.es. Carolyn's new book, Existential Kink, is available at amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for tuning in to Stargazer. You can listen to this show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Aeolian Heart Astrology. And if you like today's show, support my Patreon so you can get secret episodes and early access to new shows. If you'd like to receive regular astrology updates from me, be sure to subscribe to my newsletter at AeolianHeart.com. Much love, Rachel. <laughs>